The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Help! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 329 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host, a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is confidentiality of health information. Now, health information is called personal health information by government information technology companies and healthcare organizations. And personal health information is any, any health-related information that hospitals, doctors, nurses, laboratories, or any other healthcare services collect about a person who is named and identified in the record of the information. Personal health information includes the most private and personal information of individuals. It can be kept in paper folders or in electronic systems. An electronic health record, it's abbreviated to EHR, and an electronic medical record, EMR, are electronic ways in which personal health information is stored. Electronic health or medical records are stored in databases. Records of individuals in the databases can be seen or copied or sometimes even changed by anyone with the appropriate password that enables them to access the records in the appropriate database. Big data is the techie's name for databases which are huge very, very large. An example of a big database would be one which contained the electronic health records of everyone in a major U.S. state or in a large Canadian province or even in one or other or both of the entire countries, which is why our topic, confidentiality of health information, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Bill Bonner. Bill is Associate Professor at the Paul J. Hill School of Business, University of Regina, Saskatchewan, where he teaches on the subject of management information systems. He's conducted research on privacy for over 10 years. As a privacy advocate, he believes that at the core of privacy is the question of respect and that this respect is important and worth protecting. He recognizes that privacy interests must be balanced against other interests, but what puzzles him is how unbalanced the balancing act appears to be in practice. He thinks that the scales used to balance privacy expectations against other interests seem to tilt too easily in favor of the other interests. So welcome to the show, Bill. Well, thank you for inviting me. 
Great. Now, first question for you. Please tell us, Maury, about your research on privacy. Okay, well, I'll set it up. I mean, I, I have a business background. I'm, I'm from practice and got various business degrees. I wound up pursuing a PhD with a, a focus on, on information systems, as you mentioned earlier. So um, I'm not a Luddite. I understand technology. I've been working with technology for 30, 40 years now. Um, but I, I tend to explore. I do explore. I'm not a, I'm not a, a stat guy doing statistics or surveys. I, I prefer to stay in the real world and examine that. And so I explore past and present instances where privacy has been trumped by some other interest to see if it was actually necessary, because there's always more than one way, or there should always be more than one way. And the first instance of that that really set me off was looking at the motor vehicle registry in Alberta, where they were selling name and address and gender information to account holders, the province was. And the issue came up, and it was discussed and discussed and discussed, and finally a committee said that due to historical purposes and practices, we recommend no change to the practice, so it would continue. But what does that mean? Is balanced against privacy against something else, something called historical purposes and practices? What were they? And of course, nobody seemed to know what they were, so that was the start of my historical research, was I had to go back 80 years and find out what those actual practices were. And it was fascinating and, and very, very strange at the same time, because the most common question that arose over those 80 years was, should we be selling this information? So how does that work? How does that balance work? If, we, if the question is about propriety on one side and, 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 and privacy on the other side, it didn't. privacy got trumped, and, and so it's continuing to be sold, which I just found extremely, extremely odd and started basically a whole chain of research around, the, around that balancing act, as you mentioned earlier. Um, I'm not a ludate. I know and understand technology, but I think technology has enough cheerleaders out there, um, consultants and salespeople and so on. And I think the, these instances need to be probed. And right. Fun to boot. Right. Now, uh, terms that we hear and use are confidentiality, privacy, and security. Now, please explain to us, Bill, how, in regard to personal health information, those three terms relate to each other and how they differ from each other. In other words, please explain them to us. Bill? (laughs) I'll give you my, my interpretation of them. Um, privacy is the umbrella umbrella term for 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 that. that I put that at the top and say that that relates to the right, our right to set boundaries, boundaries between ourselves and others, um, the right to set that space. And you can see it. I use this example. If you look at the relationships you have with other people, some of them are extremely, extremely close. Some are fairly casual. Some are fairly distant. If you examine them, I think that what defines them, the, the, the level of closeness, is how much you have revealed to each other and how much you revealed about yourselves to each other. And, it, and it's reciprocal. And so health information could be in there, right? But there's an expectation. There's actually, there's mutual risk involved because you've both shared information. And so that, that, that's how I view privacy, the right to set that space and define who um, we reveal to and how, in, in, in getting close to people. Confidentiality is, is, is a bit different. There's certainly expectation of confidentiality in those personal relationships I just mentioned in defining privacy. Um, but that's, it's almost unstated. It's a, it's a mutual um, expectation of, of, of confidentiality there. But confidentiality, we get into the healthcare field particularly, we don't have relationships with um, the doctors. We do, but not close ones that we mutual sharing takes place. It's a professional relationship. And so... We have to give up the information. We want to give up the information to the physician that they, they can offer care. They want us to reveal 
And the only way that relationship works, since it's not personal, is that there are guarantees or assurances of confidentiality that the information I reveal won't be used by anyone else for any other purpose. And that, that kind of works. Um, security is something else again. Security is um, it's prevent unauthorized access. That's the goal of security. So it's already been revealed. It's, it's still confidential. You could probably say it's, it's they're trying to keep it somewhat confidential. But it is a trade-off between access and, 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 and keeping it confidential, keeping it secure. I can make a record, any kind of record, 100% secure by denying anybody access to it. Well, that makes no sense at all, particularly in the health field, if I'm going to help someone. So there's that, it's a very tricky one, um, security. It's that trade-off between access and, and, and security, keeping it confidential. Now then, just to sort of expand a little bit on this notion of security... It's a question of protecting the information from people or individuals or systems or whatever that you as an individual don't want getting access to your record for any purpose. Mm -hmm. I know I've I've exaggerated that in a certain way, but is that more or less, am I more or less right in what I've just said about that? Well, I really, at some point, it's being kept secure by other people, and, and I really don't know. I'm still relying on my original confidentiality expecta- expectation with my physician. Because in your opening remarks, you mentioned that, you know, these records can be accessed by people with the appropriate password. Well, I don't actually assign anyone passwords or define who's gonna, who should have that password. So right. It's out of my hands in terms of what happens once it's collected. Right, right. Very helpful. Now... Slight a different question, but it's this. Please summarize for us the types of harm that can occur when personal health information, as we've defined it, is misused or abused. Please please say what those types of harm are. Bill? Yeah, well, those, um, that, that all tends to, I'll get to those, to just as I'll set it up. My largest concern about these, these, these records from which the harm can emerge is that if we do not anticipate and address the attraction of that data, it's, it's, you mentioned big data or a honeypot, we run the risk of the development of a black market of unauthorized information sharing, which I'll talk about later. I, I've done research on this, and it's, it's bizarre, and it's scary just how these develop. And that black market would have no checks and balances on it. So the kind of risks that that would uh, create for people um, would involve things like making um, you, that information would be used in decision-making and you wouldn't know about it. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you apply for insurance and you get denied insurance and you're not entirely sure why. And, and they're not forthcoming because they, you, don't, they, you don't know they have your information. Since it's a black market, they're not going to tell you. Um, same thing with employment. You, you don't get a job because someone's got a piece of information and they think they read it in a certain way and, and therefore you're disqualified, but you don't know why. And because it's a black market, they don't have to tell you. Um, within that, that kind of information that would be acquired that way and without our knowledge could be partial. I mean, it's bad enough that it's being used without our knowledge anyway, but it could only be partial information, for example, that you, you had a test. And a test can be done for any number of reasons. For example, um, I give blood a lot. And it's tested for AIDS, apparently, every time I give blood. Well, what would happen if someone just picked up, Bill was tested for AIDS? Aha. Well, what would that do to someone who was offering me insurance or, or someone who was thinking of employing me or perhaps even housing if that was an issue? Um, that might be interpreted as, as in one way. 
because the purpose of the context of that test isn't known. And any number of instances I can think of, or at least I'm concerned about, where I've seen this a lot, where the police, not police, but the information gatherers collect information. They say, okay, so-and-so was charged with a crime, but they never follow through and say, well, was it dismissed? Were they convicted? And so on. So that, that idea of partial information, I guess the example I just used for blood testing with AIDS is probably as good as any. And it can also just be used to embarrass us. As I said earlier, you know, we reveal to people we know and they reveal back to us and, and a very, very personal personal information. If someone takes that information and broadcasts it to the world, when we, you know, we don't know any of these people and we wouldn't have otherwise. There was a woman recently who apparently who had um, some sort of sexually transmitted disease and that information was posted on Facebook by people who didn't like her. Well, now the world knows. It's not, it's not the kind of thing you would have shared with the world. So those are those are examples of concerns I have of what the harm that could be done with. Right. Now we're going to go into more detail about those kinds of challenges and their effects on people in the upcoming segments. But right now, it's time for us to take the break. This is where I like to say we have to pay the rent. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guest is Dr. Bill Bonnet. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Question, what's working and what's not working in your life? Though we resolve each year to do things differently and we want what's great for our businesses, our relationships, our health, and more, we don't always know where to turn when life gets tough. That's where Leading Life Large with host Rob Braun comes in. Our show challenges you to reevaluate where you are and keep pushing your way to the success you desire. If you want it bad enough, we can help you turn your life around. Leading Life Large airs Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Want the inside scoop about what's going on in the social networks of art and entertainment? Tune in to Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com. We'll talk to the top professionals in the entertainment industry and find out what they're working on and what's next. Your host is James Barber, who has his finger on the pulse of the arts and entertainment world. Star Power Hour, brought to you by 4talent.com, live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Bill Bonner. 
Our topic is confidentiality of health information. So now let's discuss, Bill, please, what can be learned from past experience about the ways in which harm arises when personal health information is misused or abused. Now, your research on privacy issues tends to have an historical element. Um, we have enough privacy issues on the present, and you've already hinted at that. So why are we going back to dig up old issues? <laughs> um, um, well, I'll use the, the motor vehicle registry example that I, that I cited earlier. That was my starting point with, with um, it's my first introduction to the value of history. Um, and I concluded from that, since that, remember what it was, right? It was privacy was trumped by historical purposes and practices, but historical purposes and practices had no substance. And so it, it raises questions about current practices and whether they should even continue. And so that, that was the starting point um, in terms of going doing any historical research. I never set out to do historical research. But it, it, it transcends well, because in my field of management studies, it, it's mind-blowing if you actually if you actually embrace it, the rise, the fall, and the rise again of management fads and fashions and buzzwords and consulting terms that, 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 that continually reappear as though new, um, the, re, you know, the repackaging of, of stuff that we've already seen, and consultants do very, very well on this, and so do, I'll leave it that, consultants do very well. They make a fortune repacking this, packaging this stuff, but who else benefits? And certainly... Um, Technology is another one, for example. We talk about the cloud. You know, there is no cloud. There really is no cloud. There's a server here, computer here, and a server over there. Nothing in the middle. Um, so the, the benefit, but that's been around for a long, long time. And if you look at medicine or, or med mm, mental health, sorry, but uh, health management, or at least, you know, we'll leave it like that, the lean, the idea of lean manufacturing or lean processes being introduced into healthcare management, lean being just like that, lean meat, no fat, very smooth and effective and efficient processes. That stuff comes from from Toyota in the 80s and their success in producing cars and, and beating up the, the big three in North America. That's old stuff. It's been reinvented as a healthcare uh, initiative, and, and we're spending millions and millions and here in Saskatchewan. We certainly are at the moment. Um, and so when I look at privacy... You get the same thing. You look at privacy. Oh, yeah, okay, privacy. Well, you know, people are collecting data. Well, where are they collecting the data? Well, they're collecting it in computers. Ah, so it's a computer problem. Well, let's see now. Well, that's all about data then, isn't it? And so somehow privacy and the richness that I described it earlier starts to become about, about, about data and computers. Um, and so we have solutions for that. We bring in computer security experts to look at keeping the data secure. And there are rules around protection of data. We have privacy commissioners and so on and privacy legislation in the United States. So bring in the lawyers because they know all about these rules. All of us, and so what happens, I think, is the question of what it is we're trying to protect gets distorted because we don't hold on to the richness of the, of the idea and the term. And without its past, and conflicts about privacy in the past, we wind up with this caricature that we're trying to protect. And it's very difficult to protect something when it's missing most of its richness and its substance. Right. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm just going to, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but just to say very quickly, that's powerfully important because it parallels medicine and it parallels things like aviation, where in both circumstances, when things go wrong, studying carefully, recording the history, knowing what happened and knowing and understanding what needs to be done to prevent it is fundamental to the way in which those things operate. Um, so therefore... Yes, history 
is crucial. Now, I'm now going to ask you, what can be learned from history, past experience, about the ways in which harm arises because of misuse or abuse of personal information held in the electronic health record systems of hospitals, clinics, and medical offices? Phil? Okay. Let's speak to, to, to two studies particularly. One's in the United States with a Privacy Protection Study Commission in the mid-'70s and a royal commission here in Ontario, or here in Canada, sorry, in Ontario, called the Royal Commission on the Confidentiality of Health Information. And both of those forced people who were accessing information they were not entitled to to come in and testify. And it was, it's fascinating to read the, test, the testimony, but it's also scary because... These people don't really care whether it's in the, the medical information that they're looking for was in medical records office and therefore on paper somewhere or in a computer somewhere. They didn't want to go into the room or they don't want to go into the computer. What they were trying to do and were so effective at it was getting you to do it for them, to fool people. And it's been referred to as social engineering. Well, I think the proper term is pretexting um, where the art of getting people to do what you want without them realizing your real intentions, which they would not do if they knew what your intentions were. Um, and they referred to as marks in the testimony. We, we, we had marks that we went after for the information. And one of the people that was revealed later had been releasing information without realizing it. And bear in mind, please, these people weren't being paid. Oh, no, no, no. There was no money switching hands here. They were just being tricked. And so one, one person who much later, as a result of testimony, was called in and said, you know, you're releasing information. She said... Well, actually, he was a doctor, actually. You cannot absolutely be sure who they are, who they, that they claim to be. But they had so information, much information, they could hardly be anyone else. They were just that fooled as to who they were talking about. Each time, they, they would work from mark to mark to mark and build up the stories for the next person. So it was those techniques from the past that no amount, no amount of computer security today is going to prevent, us, prevent at all. Um, there was... Um, they would hire nurses, for example, to talk to hospitals, to talk to medical offices as part of the pretexting strategy because nurses could talk the lingo. Um, another, another neat trick <laughs> was, was you, they would phone the hospital or a, yeah, say a hospital at a very busy time knowing it would be busy, and then they would record the message that the hospital system would, would, would play while you were put on hold. And then they would call their mark inside the hospital and, and start to talk to them. Oh, no, wait a minute, wait. Can I just put you on hold for a second? I have to do something. And all they would do is they'd play back the recording of the sound they had earlier recorded on the hospital's uh, holding system. And, and, and fooled just by that act, the mark, to think that this person was one of them from calling from within the hospital. Um, now, there was one guy, though. There was a doctor porter, and he was a weird duck. But what he did was he actually, he was a physician, but he had no right to be in any of these hospitals. But he would go into the hospital, go into the staff room, he would put on a white coat, grab a stethoscope, and present himself as Dr. Porter, and actually he was, and ask for records. And nobody, like that's the whole part of pretexting and social engineering. He looked like a doctor. In fact, he was, but others could have done it and have. There were people playing priests and stuff, just to fool people in, in terms of the context. Now, what that revealed, that testimony revealed, was this practice had been going on for 30 or 40 years and no one seemed to know it at the time. Equifax, one of the main players, claimed to have access to 89% of the 12,000 hospitals in Canada and the United States through this kind of pretexting. Would you go so far as to say that the pretexting is a form of fraud and deception? Oh, absolutely. Oh, no question. Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, what was that game, the uh, show with uh, 
There was a <laughs> um, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, The Sting. Yeah. That, that kind of working on Marx was exactly that. Yep, yep. Now, next question. Yep. What can be learned from past experience about the ways in which harm arises because of misuse or abuse of personal health information that, that is accessed or held mm. by police, mm. government, and insurance companies? Okay. Yeah, I've got a couple examples here. One of them from, from, the, from the study that I'm talking about. And you have to bear in mind, one of the neat things about history is you have to go back and get a sense for the times. But the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police here in Canada, were very much concerned about communist organizations. And, and, and so in order to, to disrupt these organizations, they accessed the, the psychiatric records of a, of a leader of, one of, the, uh, of, one, of the, one of the communist parties here in Canada and then wrote Dear Comrade letters. And I, I have a copy of the letters. It, it's just, dear comrades, um, have you noticed that the, the leader has been exhibiting strange behavior at this important time in our in our movement? We need someone with stability. The reason that he has problems is because he has seen a psychiatrist and he has all these problems. So this information was gathered and used and, and, and to, to, to discredit somebody in this place. And okay, that's an interesting story. But one of the things that we see it today, unfortunately, with um, with, the, with the thing about the Snowden releases is that RCMP just denied, 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 denied. And then finally they had to admit, oh yeah, okay, we used it that once, but never, ever, ever again. And you read the testimony, and they deny, deny, and deny, oh, oh was another one. Oh yeah, okay, we missed that one. And it gets a bit scary that there are no checks and balances. I, that, that really drives me nuts, but that was some years ago. More recently, there was this woman, and she was flying from somewhere in Ontario through New York en route to... I really don't remember where it was. It might have been to the Caribbean. Let's say it is. So she wasn't actually planning to spend any time in New York. And this one's very, very current. And she was turned back by the U.S. border agents and sent back to Canada because they rejected her entry into the country because of mental health issues. And she's dumbfounded. Like, why would the U.S. border agency know anything about her mental health? Well, as it turns out, the whatever local area that she was in in Ontario some ten years ago, I gather she had committed uh, committed she, uh, attempted suicide, unfortunately, and that was recorded by the by the local police. And you know, you, you think about it on one hand, it's okay, well, it, you know, it, it'd be useful for them to know if they were ever called to this house that this could be an issue. But at some point, it delete this stuff, right? Ten years is that long enough? But then it was released, I believe, I could be called on, on the actual order of events, whether it was released from the local police service to the Ontario police service. With that, her, with that information in it that she had attempted suicide, it was definitely wound up in the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, CPIC system, the Canadian Police Information Centre system. And so in that federal system now, there was this uh, record of her having at one point attempted to commit suicide. How that got shared, like there's no parsing apparently, that wound up being shared, sorry, let's finish the story, that wound up being shared with the U.S. Border Agency people. But is there no parsing of information? First of all, who knew this was being done? No idea. The Privacy Commissioner in Ontario, <laughs> you got to love her. She gets very, very active. She, uh, she, she pushed and pushed and pushed and, and discovered it, right? But there's no parsing of this information. At what point do you, do you purge it? Uh, at what point do you say, okay, we're only serving this set, not the whole set? I mean, the woman wasn't planning to spend any time in New York. Um, so also in, in, in the... Um, for insurance companies, in, in, the, in the earlier study that I talked about, they would gather way more information. At first, they weren't entitled to the information, and they gather things completely unrelated to the accident, like uh, at the time, abortions were very, very uh, not very good at all. And so you can only get them under certain circumstances, maybe therapeutic abortions. And so the insurance companies would get this on a woman who had a car accident, 
and then settle, sit down to settle the claim with her and say, you know, we could go to court, but you know, do you really want they do, do you really want this coming up in court? So, it can be seriously misused uh, for. Yeah, I'll leave it like that. Bill, <clears throat> we're at the end of this particular segment, and we're going to move on to more. But this is alarming history that you're sharing with us. That is, it shows us what not only what could go wrong, but what actually did go wrong, and therefore learning from past experience, which you've stressed, becomes vital if we really are going to improve whatever it is, confidentiality, privacy, and security of the most important information relating to me, you, and everybody else who's an individual in our countries. Now, we'll come back to more about this, but it again is the time, the tyranny of time, to take the break. So this is Dr. Gordon Alley, and my guest is Dr. Bill Bonner. Listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Master your reality and manifest your desires effortlessly. Listen to The Trivetti Effect to find out how raising your level of consciousness can totally transform every aspect of your life. Hosted by Mahendra Kumar Trivedi with Trivedi Master Alice Branton. Our program will spotlight the nearly 4,000 documented scientific studies that have proven the transformational impact of this energy extends beyond humans to all living and even non-living matter. Tune in Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. When you make decisions, do you ever find yourself in doubt? Are you trying to figure out what's right with you? Are you ready to truly change your life? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the founders of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane Here. Consciousness is all about including everything and judging nothing. Our program will help you break free from your personal limitations and enhance positive change in all areas of your life. Tune in to Access Consciousness, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc. G at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Bill Bonner. Our topic is confidentiality of health information. Bill, now let's discuss what could have been but hasn't been sufficiently learned from past experience 
about the ways in which harm arises when personal health information is misused or abused. So, question one, what could have been but hasn't been sufficiently learned um, about the harm or misuse of abuse of personal health information held in the electronic health record systems of hospitals, clinics, and medical offices? Bill? Well, I think the critical lesson that, that I, I can, I'm concerned about is that if it is unchecked, if we don't recognize the interest in this data, it will be, it will be abused. And the, the market will develop, and I'll talk about a market in, in a little bit. But I want to talk about specifically um, an instance with, with, the, with a healthcare electronic health record here in Alberta, an instance, and relating it back to Dr. Porter that I mentioned earlier. There was an, in Alberta, there was a case, the Privacy Commissioner of Alberta um, was investigated. It involved a couple, man and wife, they split up. She was a nurse. He and, and she took up with a doctor and he took up with someone else. So a, a couple split up. And the, the husband was at the divorce, the, her, her divorce, divorce lawyers for a meeting of some kind. And he was disturbed by, by the number of health questions he was getting. And I, I don't know the context. Another curiosity after the meeting was over, he went to um, Alberta Health and asked for a log of all the people who'd access his health record. And this is a cool thing they've set up. They actually do have a log. So he got the log, and it was 12 or 13 doctors he did not recognize who had access, who had accessed his health record. And then and his girlfriend, he said, well, he checked, she checked her record. It was three doctors who had checked her record that she had no dealings with. And apparently even his mother's record was checked by a doctor that they had no dealings with. So the privacy commissioner came in and was called in to investigate. He called the 12 or 10 or 12 doctors, 12 or 13 doctors in and said, well, what were you doing accessing this guy's records? And so we don't know who this guy is. Not one of the doctors knew who this guy was or the, or the, or the new girlfriend or the mother who were completely stymied. And eventually it came out that the, the, the wife's new boyfriend was a doctor and he worked in a hospital. And what happened was that these other physicians had accessed the electronic health record with their passwords, got whatever information from the system they wanted, then walked away and left the terminals vacant, left the terminals uh, unused. And Buddy just decided to sit down, and, 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 and I don't know why he wanted to do it so often, but sat down and used their login to check, um, let's see, how's it worked out, his girlfriend's former husband's records, and did that also for the, for the new girlfriend, the husband's new girlfriend, and, and, and his mother. The point is, it was, um, it was, these things are set up to log themselves off after five or ten minutes, but in a situation like that, near the emergency room, we're actually in the emergency room, those terminals are never down, so they never had a chance to log themselves out. So now just picture for a moment, because I think my earlier story, okay, you had Dr. Porter who walked into the, walked into the hospitals he had no business being in, went to the lunchroom, grabbed a white coat, grabbed a stethoscope, walked up to the medical records department and asked for the records. And he was given the records. He looked like a doctor. And so just picture now those vacant terminals and anybody putting on a white coat and sitting down at those terminals. Who's going to call this person on it? Um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, that's absolutely right, isn't it? That's the... I'm going to call it the impersonation. That's the pretexting, and that's the question of understanding that it has gone on and it will go on again unless action is taken to deal with the kind of things you've identified, like when a doctor's finished looking at the computer, it should be shut down. 
whether it does it itself or whether the doctor has to do it, those are technical issues for a later date. But that's your message, powerful. Now, the next question is exactly the same, but it concerns the harm that arises because of misuse or abuse of personal health information that's held by police, government, and insurance companies. What could have been learned and applied but hasn't been? Bill? Hmm. Um, basically, I think there was an active market in the past with people willing to pay for this information and others willing to get it. Now, in the examples I mentioned earlier, other than Dr. Porter, nobody got paid. People were tricked, incredibly tricked, and some of them are very embarrassed afterwards to realize how badly they've been tricked. But there was no money from the healthcare workers who revealed the information. The money was paid by the insurance companies to the adjusters or detectives to get this information they weren't entitled to get. That is going on as well at the moment. There was, um, it's very, very current. There was two, two workers fired um, from a hospital in um, the Rouge Valley Centenary Hospital in Scarborough, Ontario, where those two employees sold the names, addresses, and phone numbers of some 8,300 new mothers to companies, and this is all we got at the moment, is to companies selling registered education savings plans. So these new mothers were approached with people who had information about their having children um, and, and pitched um, RESPs. I'd love to know more because those employees were paid by somebody. And the payee, there's no market. If nobody's paying, then there's no one, no one willing to sell it, right? So we don't know the details on that one. I'm a little concerned because I don't, not concerned, confused about this story because I don't know if that hospital is big enough to have 8,300 new mothers in, in, in it over how, how long that would take to acquire that. We don't know enough to know whether they were accessing just um, new mothers in that hospital or new mothers across the system. I just don't know. Um, so that was one example. The oversharing of health information I've already mentioned, the Ontario Police, police feeding the, the, uh, the RCMP system, which somehow wound up with access accessed by the, the U.S. Border Patrol folks. Um, yep. I was just going to say, you mentioned suicide, information about attempted or suicide. Yep. Have you anything more that you'd like to say about that? The information's in the hands of the police. Yep. Um, and it goes places where there's recall in the sense that what was in the past is now possibly used against an individual who wants to travel somewhere in the way you were describing it or something else. What more have you got to say about that kind of problem? Well, that's where I don't know who's, who's even looking at that. Well, that, that's the travel of digital information. There's, it's so easy to capture. It is so easy to move. And I don't really know anyone, or if anyone, is actually at the, at the border lines but as they start to share it, saying, no, no, stop. This is not to be shared. So as I said earlier, I mean, if, if I was a police officer in that woman's jurisdiction and I was called to her house within a few months, it might be useful to me as I'm driving up to know that I might be dealing with someone who's... who's Maybe may have harmed themselves, but at some point, if it was ten years, you, you, there, this stuff should be purged. And again, who's making those decisions at those critical points? The transfer of the information from the Ontario system to the to the federal system. Why would the why would the federal system ever need to know it? Right? And so, what should be parsed out of there? I don't know. But who, who's there to make that decision? And I guess. There isn't enough emphasis on the importance of those decisions because then somehow it winds up being passed on mass to the U.S. border folks. Well, they need some information, clearly, but 
it should be parsed, parsed at some point. And, and, and the right to be forgotten. It shouldn't follow you around forever. Um, if a woman survived well for five or ten years, it should be gone. Right. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you about big data systems. But you've already, I think, identified a point that we have to address, and I'm going to put it as a question to you. Big data systems, which are accumulating data, um, health information um, from all kinds of resources, um, that goes on, that continues, and your whole question of purging of having some rules about what can be allowed to stay and what cannot be allowed to stay becomes extremely important. And then there's the question of, well, what other kinds of misuse or abuse can take place in these big data systems? You know, and for example, used for genetic information, genetic histories, used for medications research and that kind of thing. Complex question. Bill, have a go. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, I think the, the, the greatest risk is, is understating, the, under, understating the potential interest. When we think of electronic health records as individuals and we think of the benefits to ourselves, we talk of uh, reducing duplicate tests, getting results faster as a consequence, reduce drug interaction effects, getting test results quicker. This is all good. Okay? And I mean, I'm not a ludate. I, I think there's some really good stuff out there. Um, but we have to be careful and understand about the potential interest in this data, use the term a honeypot in terms of a bear. I mean, this is just growing and growing and growing and becoming more attractive. So who's going who's gonna to be hovering around it, looking at it with interest? There are a number that I'm concerned about, or at least not so much concerned about. Yes, I am, but we should be addressing them. Um, do we provide, for example, drug companies? Um, drug companies would have an interest in this data. Well, what's our interest in providing drug companies with this data, if we have any at all? And who's, who's, who's making that call? Um, whose decision is that? And if you know well, the behind-the-scenes example earlier of the police making or not making decisions, is, is, is kind of frightening. If, if, if we don't know if anyone's paying attention here, we talk about medical research. Medical research and research generally has this halo effect in society. All research is automatically good. Well, wait a minute. Is it? Um, is, well, how do we distinguish? And where is the line between medical research for the good of all and for-profit research, where those with the deepest pockets hoard the data? I mean, how we ha- it's our data. We should have an interest in this data and what gets done with it, be making calls like that. Um, and as I was thinking about this, there was a, a sociologist, he's passed away now, but Edward Schills, um, I've always found fascinating because he had some interesting comments and, and raised challenges about the whole idea of research. Um, watching here, let me just read this to you. There's about three lines here. Uh, makes a comment, nonetheless... Even though one grants that the common good cannot be realized in a society consisting only of private entities, and that common good requires some restrictions on the right to privacy, one is also impressed that many justifications in terms of the common good in very many instances of intrusion into privacy are mendacious in the extreme. A great deal of the intrusion into personal privacy is not only a moral affront to human dignity, it is also quite useless and unnecessary from any serious standpoint. Much of it is the frivolous self-indulgence of the professionals of intrusion. <laughs> yeah. It's a powerful line, but what those professionals that he's talking about are university-trained researchers who are looking for things to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Professional intruders, that's a very, very keen, sharp 
uh, observation. Mm-hmm. Once again, we're at the time for the break, so we'll take it now, but we're going to talk more what what you think should be done about all these things. But let's take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Avery, and my guest is Dr. Bill Bonner. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, JMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You may know how to make money, but do you know how to manage it and make it work for you? That's where the Financial You Radio Show comes in. Host Annette Rayner and her guests will show you how to keep your financial future in check. Money matters in just about every part of your life. doesn't matter if you work for a Fortune 500 company or the neighborhood store. Your financial goals can be realized. Listen for The Financial You every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel because your money matters. When you think of inspiring women, who comes to mind? Is it a visionary like Oprah Winfrey? Political or legal figures like Hillary Clinton or Sonia Sotomayor? Or how about entrepreneurial business leaders like Meg Whitman? No matter whom you might be thinking of, make sure to add one more to that list. Deanne DeMarco. She's the host of Today's Inspiring Women. Each week, Deanne turns you on to the next rising star in business and leadership and what their successes and challenges have been. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Bill Bonner. Our topic is confidentiality of health information. Now, Bill, let's talk about the things that you would like to do and see done to generate action, to apply the lessons that haven't been sufficiently learned and from the past experience in the way that you've been exposing that past experience. So first of all, what more would you like to do to generate the action that's going to be needed for us to learn? Bill? Um, to share these lessons with, with your audience. Uh, you know, it's one thing for me to do these studies, and I, I'm fascinated, but there are dead ends if I, I don't do anything with them. And, and I, have to, I have to be honest, I, I struggle with that. So I do appreciate your, your, your assistance here and willingness to, to put up with me. <laughs> it's an outreach opportunity, and they're hard to get and hard to develop. Um, for example, I've got this presentation that I did. Um, it's a 40-minute presentation. It includes all of those strange justifications from the 76 and so on that I presented to um, 
to a to a to a Western Canadian Privacy Forum, and it was well received in but a few people who were there in a very horrified sort of way. They were just blown away by it. But their, their next question was, well, what do we do? I get all this pretexting and social engineering, and, and I got to say, they stumped me there, um, sitting in my office here. I, I don't get out that. So I guess in what I would like to do. I think I need to somehow link up with, with healthcare management and those that test security and link those two people together, make the presentation to management and say, okay, these people test your system. Guys talk to each other. Um, somehow I have to get out um, and, and do that. I'm not really sure, and I struggle with it being, you know, um, the middle of the Canadian Prairie is a beautiful place, but <laughs> you're a bit isolated out here. Um, and then another thing I've tried is certainly writing papers, and I, I believe you read this paper. I, I was submitted it to a conference in Savannah coming up in, 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 in um, next month, I think it is, but um, I couldn't get past the gatekeepers on that one. It was just bizarre. Um, uh, comments like, it was shot, this is old stuff. There's no, there's no, uh, no, no references from this century. Oh, it must have been a child or a kid. Where's the model? Where's the hypothesis? Where's the equations? It was just the strangest thing to, to read, the, the, the review. And so in, in my field, it only looks at the present. There is no past. I'm here today, and that's all that's important. It's very hard to penetrate and, and say, no, 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 no. Put yourself in context. Um, there was even a statement in the review um, about U.S. HIPAA, which is the Health Information Portability, Health Insurance Portability and Something Act. Somebody that reviewed the paper said, you know what, pretexting is not an issue anymore because there's this legislation that prohibits it. Now, oh, man, you're nuts. A piece of paper is not going to do anything like that. So overall, I appreciate your opportunities. I am trying to get outreach and, and do outreach and talk to people and make presentations. I'm struggling with it a bit. But I will continue to work on ways to get the message out about the lessons from the past. Good. Now, what more would you like to see done by healthcare and social systems to apply these lessons that haven't been learned in the past? From well, I mean, I focused a lot today on pretexting, and for good reason. Um, I know the security, when you talk to computers and you start talking about security, I'm reminded of, um, I'm reminded of, the, uh, Shows you see on TV that show uh, apartment buildings in New York that the inside of an apartment door was a deadbolt, 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 deadbolt. Well, that's what the computer security does. It just puts deadbolts bolts all over the front yard, sorry, the front door. But pretexting is basically going through the open back door. And I, I don't think anywhere near enough attention or recognition and in, in, in the review of my paper that I mentioned earlier, it's so typical or so, such an example of just a failure to recognize the the, the pretexting in it and, and it's both past and present power. Um, also that that outsiders do not want to get into the computer. No, 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 no. They don't want to get in it. They want you to get in it for them. So all the locks that you set up are going to be bypassed by your very own people. And if you do not test them on on these kind of social engineering techniques, all the security in the world is not going to prevent anything. Um, I would like to see generally speaking management more clearly charged with final responsibility and accountability for both the confidentiality and um, leakages or errors in that area because they're in the best position to influence events. They, they do or do not do the training. They, they, they do or do not provide the, the security. Uh, they do or do not provide the uh, decisions on when to encrypt, what to collect, how long to collect it. Bruce Schneier is a, is a, a very, very well-respected uh, security guy, and he basically says this. You make the person in the position best to mitigate the risk responsible for it, and it will get done. And so I think much more has to be tagged to management on that. Now, yep. 
You used earlier a term which made me think there isn't sufficient respect for whatever we're going to call it, confidentiality, privacy, or security Mm. of personal health information. And therefore, it doesn't matter. Uh, This is going to wind up with a question mark at the end. Mm -hmm. For people to take enough interest in the kind of things you're talking about. Do you agree with me on that or not? Unfortunately, I do. I do, in part because everyone's very busy looking at the head of their own particular pin. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a healthcare provider in this area. I'm a security guy in this area. I'm a lawyer who interprets, interprets the legislation. And what, what I see is, is, is another uh, academic has used the term the, the sieve of over-specialization. You get too many specialists looking at the head of their own particular spot of the sieve, and these things that you're talking about, respect, just fall right through like flour through a sieve. I'm afraid that's true, in my opinion. Right. Now, the next question that that occurs to me about this, just briefly, is once respect, or if respect is missing, then we get into ethical issues, and ethical issues, in the end, have that potential to create political issues that can sometimes be very serious. Do you see any potential for that? in what we've been talking about, what you've just been talking about yeah. in the systems, the question of lack of respect. Bill? Uh, unfor- yeah, yes, but unfortunately, and, I've, and I, I've had people tell me this in the past, what we're going to need to get that ethical attention and that respect is a tsunami of screw-up. Uh, a, a breach of such magnitude that nobody can ignore it. Right. In other words, we have to attract, something has to attract the attention. And uh, that's absolutely right. Now, my very last question to you, because unfortunately we're coming to the end of this important uh, episode. What's your message for family caregivers about protection of the personal health information of their family members and of themselves? Okay, well, you know, I thought about, I think about these people, and I can only imagine how hard it is to, to both care for themselves and for others. And it doesn't, it doesn't leave much in terms of time. And I, and I know the, the standard response is, well, we have to read policies and stuff, but they're written not to be read, not to be understood. So I, I guess I, w- I would lean towards grouping with others, and therefore, um, for example, I, I went looking at uh, social media the, the other night and looked at um, you know, the caregivers, just looked up caregivers, and there was a forum there for support caregivers of persons with Alzheimer's. And so I think caregivers who are, who are caring for themselves, we can't remember, as well as others, um, can't do much on their own because they don't have much time, but collectively, perhaps a lot can be done. Um, and so I think those kind of forums, anything that can take your effort and, and magnify it, uh, which would lead to your 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 other other point. My other point here is, politicians they only act on what gets their attention, and and so you know, we can individually write politicians, and we should because caregivers are the people who are seeing what is strange. Politicians don't because in in their act of caring they see things that are weird. But also through social media that those messages can magnify. If you share, the burden is is, is dispersed. Enough people are there of interest that gets politicians' attention. Um, so I think those that, that, that sharing and going after politicians. And then I was looking at um, organizations. There are organizations out there. Electronic Privacy Information Center. It's epic. Electronic Privacy Information Center. It's a powerful, powerful advocacy group on privacy. 
And I went to their website, and under the privacy campaign, they do include a, a section on medical record privacy, and they have done some, some advocacy there. There's a, there. There might be a resource, but I guess it's the isolation I would like to like people to, who are caring for others to, to try and break that isolation and, and work with others. Right. So, in other words, it's getting together and yeah. using ele- modern electronics yeah. is a very good way of getting together. Now, unfortunately, we are at the end of this episode. Um, Bill, I would just like to say to you, please keep digging into that history that you're you have done so well, the digging, and please carry on digging because those lessons and the way you've expressed them are powerful. And if we then put them in, or you then put them in modern context and say, this is still happening and there are enough people talking about it and protesting even about it, then Maybe the politicians will listen, and maybe things will improve. But all I can say to you is, please keep up the good work. Please keep digging, because you're one of the people with the insight that's going to be needed for the change. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. From our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be He Died on My Chest. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.